Hey there, ThoughtBot podcast listener. We've all been there. You're delivering features smoothly and steadily until you hit a standstill. As Rails applications evolve to meet customers' needs, they often grow in complexity. Even teams with the highest standards and code quality can face challenges, and a fresh perspective can shed light on development, performance, and process bottlenecks. Is your team looking to speed up your Rails app, level up your code base, improve your user experience, and increase developer happiness? From addressing churn to identifying slow SQL queries, to testing and refactoring problematic code, join a panel of our experts as they share our tooling, preparation, and key areas of focus when auditing a Rails application. In our latest free online workshop, How to Supercharge Your Rails Application with a Code Audit. Head on over to tbot.io slash workshop to learn more, submit your questions, and enroll. That address again is tbot.io slash workshop. See you there. I am not recording on my side just yet. Um, I've never forgotten the name of the application. That Audio I need to. hijack. Oh, oh. <laughs> no, let's hear your uh, round of guesses. Uh, I called it Audio Flapjack earlier, so there's that. <laughs> the other breakfast food. <laughs> it makes your voice sound all rich and syrupy. Mm. <laughs> okay, I am in Audio Flapjack. And then, how does a friend flap? You're saying so many things. <laughs> you press the reflap button. Oh, right, right. Yes. Uh, and if it wasn't labeled flap, what would it be labeled? <laughs> Record? Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. Hey, Chris. Hey, Steph. How's it going? It is going pretty well. How about you? Things are going pretty well. I had to take care of two snakes in our yard this past week, which is something I haven't had to do in a while. So it, if it made me feel back in touch with my southern roots. Yeah, up here in Boston, I think all of our snakes are maybe not friendly, but are like non-poisonous, venomous. I think it's venomous that snakes would be. But are the snakes down where you are currently danger snakes? There certainly are some, yeah, that are poisonous, but the ones I, I was dealing with were like small, like garden snakes, or I think they're called like a, there's like a brown worm snake, something like that. So certainly non-venomous in this case that I was dealing with. And yeah, I guess it's, it's not that it's Southern, but it's more like my country roots and where living in Boston, dealing with snakes is not something I've dealt with in a while. But it turns out that I'm fine with snakes. Growing up in middle school, I had two teachers that had pet snakes. And that was part of like our free time is we got to hold snakes and that got us acclimated to them. But my mom is deathly terrified of them. So I was the, the snake hero to come and chew them out of the garden. So that's my big accomplishment from the week. Yeah, I mean, I, I just wrote some code. So now I'm feeling bad. I didn't make friends with any wild animals. But I don't know, dare to dream maybe the weekend I'll uh, go out into the woods and find an animal. <laughs> so got plenty of time. But anyway, and, and topics perhaps slightly more relevant to the broader audience. This week, I brought on a second client, which is a very novel experience for me. All of the seven years that I worked at ThoughtBot, I only ever had one client. And it was always a thing that was true. And I sort of took for granted isn't even the right way. I didn't even really think about it. It was just kind of the rules of the road. And in retrospect, I appreciate that so much. And it's interesting, the complexities of having more than one sort of major functional area that I'm thinking about and having to manage the context switching. And it's so deeply ingrained in my like expectations that my fancy things that allow me to CD in the terminal knows how to do it for the current client, quote unquote, 
but literally cannot do it for more like the hack that I made doesn't accept two different directories to add to the directory path. So it's it's pretty deeply ingrained and having to work around that's been interesting. What is the hack that you made? I'm trying to visualize what that is. So it's a sp- uh, particular thing in the shell. I don't know if it's a Z shell or a generic shell functionality, but it's called CD path. So all caps CD path is a, I want to say environment variable, which much like path, all caps path is a delimited list of directories that will be looked to when you CD. So if you type like CD foo, by default, I think it'll just look in the current directory. But you can add entries to the CD path such that if you type CD foo and you say like, I want my home directory work folder to be accessible by CD, then anything in that directory is accessible and you can add multiple of them. So for me, I think at this point I have like my Vim subfolder, my code top level folder and a handful of others, as well as I had a sim link that pointed at my current ThoughtBot client. This is way fancier than I think makes sense in a podcast, but we can point to some notes that if people want to read more about this. But that idea, that sim link would only ever point at a single, like if I was working for, I don't know, let's say Google was a client. If if I had Google as a subdirectory, I could point my little sim link at that. And now the CD path entry for current client would be dereferenced into everything in Google. And it would all be great. I could CD to any of the repos that I had for that client. But that doesn't work when I have two clients. That's pretty cool. I'm looking forward to the show notes so I can read more. <laughs> yeah, I didn't I didn't mean to get into the technical details of that, but they actually I really like that functionality that I was able to build out and but yeah, now I have to figure out how do I CD into multiple different subdirectories. Uh, I can just add them manually, but that sounds like a thing that I don't want to do. That's not who I am. Oh, the challenges we're facing. <laughs> this is the hardest part of having two clients. <laughs> no, honestly, the that's just the weirdest like it demonstrated to me how ingrained this idea of a single client was in my mindset. Um, but right now, I'm trying to balance the hours between the two clients, and I'm also trying to trying to protect the time that I'm on any given client. Like it was a thing that Thoughtbot always really protected very well. Is when I'm working on client work, I was able to really devote my time and focus and energy to that work, and I didn't have to worry about being pulled in a lot of different directions and having lots of internal things to deal with or anything like that. I was able to like essentially be a part of that client team. And then when it was, you know, Friday time, then I'm focused on ThoughtBot things. But now I'm having to define those structures myself. And so what I've been doing is a few of the days of the week are just all for one of the clients. But then two days of the week, I'm splitting the morning with one client and the afternoon with the other. And so lunch and a break helps to sort of split that up. But it's still just a lot of context to have in my head. And I find the end of those days, I am just done. I am completely spent. Are you doing well with that when it comes to like taking breaks and lunch? Because this is also, I mean, it's new for a lot of us, this whole like remote work. So I'm curious how you're handling that. Um, Doing okay. I think because I am more directly billing for my hours, I'm tracking them more more pointedly and I'm, I'm more focused on that. So yeah, by virtue of that, it's been keeping me more focused and therefore the time that I'm working, I'm working, the time that I'm not, I'm not. And that separation has been very clear. And so that's been useful. And then I have a gym in my basement of my house, which I'm so grateful for at this point. Very glad that past Chris decided to buy all of those things. And so I've been taking a break at lunch and going down and working out. And that's been really useful. I haven't been getting outside nearly as much as I should, although today was an absolutely beautiful day. So I went for a run at lunch instead of uh, staying inside and hiding in a basement. But I'll give myself like a B plus on taking sufficient breaks. 
I love how you introduce grading into this. Okay, cool. That's pretty solid. A B plus because yeah, there's always going to be days where it's extra challenging or it's not as nice outside. So it may not encourage you to get outside or step away for lunch. So I get that. How about you? How's your uh, day structure and breaks and things like that been going? I've made some mistakes. Uh, But for the most part, it's going well. I've had a couple days where I'll either take lunch later. I think I've only had one day that I worked through lunch. And then that ended up being where like I just cut the day a little shorter for that reason. But for the most part, I'm pretty good at it just because I have managed to convince myself that when I take those breaks, that I'm going to be a much more productive and happier human being. I always knew that was true, but it's just hard to convince myself that it's true in the moment where I want to keep going. So I I feel pretty comfortable where I'm I'm taking breaks and also trying to make sure I'm going outside and, and doing some other things besides just focused on work. Yeah, that makes sense. For me, the novelty of each of these new clients and projects and the mode of working and the working from home and all of that is I'm finding myself more spent at the end of the day. And so that's actually been helpful in terms of not letting work like go past five o'clock. I can recognize that I'm not going to be doing good work at that point. And so I'm cutting off at that time. But it's sort of built in that my human is just like, nah, we're not this isn't gonna stop. Just go, I don't know, play a video game or something, which has been nice in a way. I'm curious what video game you're playing. For the past year and a half, because I'm bad at it, I've been playing Zelda Breath of the Wild on the Switch. Ooh, okay. Nice. It's an amazing video game. It is the best video game in the history of the world, I'm pretty sure. I won't argue with you. I've played a little bit, but I'm sure not to the extent that you have, where I've just pretty much wandered around, and then I I haven't done anything. (laughs) It's so fun, though. You can just wander around, and it's good at that. And then you can like decide, okay, it's main story time, but the main story is nonlinear, and it's just like, how did they do that? Granted, my understanding is they missed two consoles, so it was like supposed to come out not on the Switch, but on the two before that. And so they missed one ship date, they missed another ship date, and then eventually came out for the Switch and they backported it to one of the others. I don't know if any of this is true, but just the in terms of like software estimation, we're bad at that. And everybody's always like, why can't software be better? And it's like, no, the whole world, it's hard to do hard things. That's my stance. <laughs> I have discovered, uh, so I have the Oculus that I've been playing with, and there's a game that I've fallen in love with. It's called Bait. It's a free game that's on the Oculus, and it simulates fishing. So it puts you in like this really like beautiful, like tropical remote area. And then it has like pretty simple goals of where you're supposed to catch so many fish. So then you can make money, you can buy better equipment. But it's been so relaxing and very pretty and very nice because I love fishing, but I don't actually like the catching and having to unhook them and throw them back with like a hole in their mouth. So this is like the best of both worlds where I get to fish, but not harm any animals, which may sound silly, but it's who I am. So no, it's been a I, lot of fun. <laughs> I get that. And the like immersiveness of VR, but used to just chill out totally makes sense. You also have Beat Saber, correct? Oh, yeah. Did I tell you my mom's crushing me at that? Uh, I think you mentioned it in <laughs> passing, but that's that's fantastic. I don't know that my mom realizes that she's been mentioned on the podcast so many times now. But yeah, she's totally crushing me at Beat Saber, which I'm so proud of her and a little distraught over. So, Yeah. I mean, you know what you need to do. You need to just keep working on it and get better and take back the throne. That sounds right. I'm going to have to invest more time into it. But yeah, I think circling back to the topic of multiple clients, that is a thing that is true. But I don't know that I have too much more to say on that. So I would love to hear what else is up in your world. Sure. So one of the things that I've been working on this week, I was taking a look at our Upcase code base, and there's a couple issues on there. And one of them that caught my eye mentioned about making Upcase open source. And now that Upcase is completely free and that repo is also public, so anyone can access the code that's there, I saw that and I was like, oh, yeah, so this is already addressed and I can close this issue. So I went ahead and I was like, 
Upcase is now open source, so I can close this issue. And some kind souls that had initially opened the issue wrote back to me and they were like, thanks for taking a look at this, but it's actually, it's public and it's not open source. And I was like, oh, that's a great point. And I've never really stopped to consider the difference between those two. So it gave me pause to consider what does it take to move Upcase into the open source space instead of just being in the public space? And what does it actually mean? What sort of license do you need for it? Does it have any team implications? If we then change it from just being like a public code base to then making it open source. So I was chatting with Mike Burns, who is in our New York City office, and he gave me some really good feedback and ideas about what to do with Upcase and where to take it. He is very much in the camp that if software can be open source, always make it open source. That's the way we want to live our lives. But he also brought up the really good point that if we make it open source, that does increase the responsibility on our team where we want to make sure that we are maintaining that software, that we are keeping it up to date. And we want to make sure that someone has ownership of that code base to make sure that it's staying up to date. So then it kind of came into this area. It's like, well, I'd really like it to be open source, but I don't know who's going to really like truly be the owner of this. And I don't think it's going to be me right now with everything going on. So I was looking for that sweet spot. It's like where I want people to be able to fork this and be able to do so freely and use it as they'd like, but also let them know that no one is actively working on this particular project. I initially had the same interpretation that you did around open source, because I think of that more as like, is it public? Can other people see the code, use the code, etc.? The additional feedback of like, actually, what we're really looking for is a license here that allows us to reuse the software was an interesting data point. But when I heard that, my take was like, oh, yeah, ThoughtBot doesn't have any interest in the sort of proprietary innards of Upcase. The code that runs it was relatively straightforward, if specific to the use case that we had, but the content was always the really interesting part. And so that is still a thing that ThoughtBot uniquely holds, I guess, copyright or ownership or whatever it is. But the source code of Upcase, I would want anyone to be able to use that as a reference or directly take parts of it if I wouldn't necessarily recommend that, but they could take parts of it. And if there's a sufficient license in the repo, then they know that they have the legal standing to take that code and run with it and do whatever they want. But it's interesting to me because after transitioning from like, oh, we're not just talking about public, we're talking about open source and licensing, I still didn't get to the place where I thought that meant we would have a burden of maintaining it. I would assume we can just say, oh, sure, we've dropped the MIT license in there, which says we have no warranty, no liability. I think MIT has those clauses in it. And if it doesn't, we should probably pick one that does. But then, yeah, here you go. Go for it. But we're not going to maintain this. We'll maintain it to whatever utility there is for us. But we're not going to, like, if you submit a patch, we're not necessarily going to take that and roll it in because we're actually still running this service off to the side so that people can still see the videos and sort of do the exercises and all of that. So that's sort of my take. The ideal in my mind would be that it is public and that people can use the code as they see fit, but we have no responsibility to like upkeep it for them. Yeah. So that was kind of my thought process as well, is where we were making open source. And then Mike had mentioned, well, we want to make sure that we are keeping it up to date. If we do that was an interesting take for me, because I also hadn't considered that those responsibility goes hand in hand with also adding the license and announcing that's open source. But I think that's Mike coming from the kind space of if you're going to tell the world that this is there for them to use, and you make it open source, there's the idea that there's also someone who is actively maintaining it. And if we're not actively maintaining it, it can still be open source, but we just want to communicate to everyone that we are not actively maintaining this. We do want to keep it up and running because as you mentioned, it's still a free service that everyone can go and use and watch all the content that's on there. But we're not necessarily like doing new feature development on that particular project. So that's where we ended up. And this may change. I don't think it will, but this is where I'm at currently. And then in case 
anyone else at ThoughtBot has suggestions or reasons to change this. But the current path forward is to add the license, make it open source, and then just add a disclaimer at the top to let people know that this is in maintenance mode. So if you submit like a patch, if you submit a bug or something like that, that that's great, please go for it. But we don't guarantee that we are going to continue to actively develop on this path what we need to to keep it up and running. That sounds like a great resolution in my mind. Or maybe even the like slightly more pointed version of this is for you to use as you see fit, but don't treat this like I don't no one should be running upcase other than Thoughtbot. Feel free to take the code and like borrow ideas and say like, oh, that's how they implemented subscriptions and teams and things like that. But I definitely don't just run upcase. It's a weird, unique thing that was like grown over I don't know how many years. It was many years. Like the code base had many different lives and yeah, I just I wouldn't recommend that to anyone. But I don't know, do whatever you want, people. There's a license now. Have fun. That was the other thing I thought about. I'm like, this isn't like factory bot where we want people to like incorporate this into their product and then help them write code. Like this is a very niche product or sort of like niche code base. And we really made it public for like educational purposes. So if anybody wanted to see how we wrote the code and how we're working together, they would have access to that. So I'm also with you. It's like if you want to fork it and do stuff, like absolutely, like go for it. But it would also be weird if people were like running this inside of like other applications. So we'll see what people do with it. But I think that's where it's headed. So it was just an an interesting sort of week of like reaching out to different people to say, I'm interested in this. I want to resolve this issue. Who has the most context? Who has strong opinions about this? What's the difference if we go open source? Like what sort of responsibilities does that put on us as a company? And it just gave me a lot more information around like how the open source world is considered and perceived from everybody. One question that I do have is, did you settle on or have you actually selected a license at this point? I haven't. Mm -mm. Okay. My typical inclination would be MIT, I think, just off the top of my head. But the interesting thing is the idea of like copy left, I want to say, licenses. So can someone take the code of Upcase and use it in a proprietary product moving forward and not also share those changes, not like keep that open source train going? Or are they required to share it? And so like the GPL, I want to say, and I think there are a couple of others, but they're the ones that have that viral aspect and will make it so that people have to share back any changes that they make built on top of the open source that you provide versus MIT is a much more permissive license. And I do not know a, a lot about these topics, but that's the like loose bit that I know. And so th- normally I'm opposed to the copyleft sort of stuff just because it seems overly restrictive and it's sort of like, I don't know, give good out into the world and hopefully good will come back, but maybe not in the exact, like don't constrain the form that the positive ramifications have to take. But in this case, I'm like, I don't know. Don't be mean though. Don't like take the stuff and hide the secrets if you add on top of it. So it's interesting. And particularly, I know Mike Burns has some thoughts on that. So I'm interested if he had any suggestions regarding the license. I don't think he mentioned a specific license, but just from the context of our general conversation, I'm pretty sure both of us were thinking the MIT license is the approach that we were going, especially because I'm not even familiar with the copyleft version, the one that you were just highlighting. So that's the one I'm defaulting to. But this is also a larger conversation with some other people at ThoughtBot that will take place too. This is almost one of those areas it's like I could move forward and ask for forgiveness later, but there's at least one or two other people that I'm going to loop into the conversation and make sure this is the right move in case there are any similar legal oddities that we want to consider. And actually, I said to move forward and ask for forgiveness later, but this is one of those areas I take it back that I would not want to do that because I don't want to give someone legal permission to do something and then try to walk that back. That is not the correct approach. I'm just used to other areas where I'll try to take that approach, but this area is not one of those. Yep, seems true. So what else is going on with your projects? 
Well, so like I said, I brought on a second client and interestingly working with that second client, there's another admin system that I have run into and already feeling some pain around that. So this particular one is using React Admin, which is overall, I think, a pretty good project, but similar, actually, I think twice this week, I ran into issues where what seemed like a relatively simple thing, but was not the like very default up the middle path was way harder than it needed to be across both of the different situations that I'm working in. In the one case, I was working on the Rails side, and this was in Active Admin, and I had an array field, so a Postgres array, like a native Postgres array, and that was very difficult to work with in Active Admin. I found it difficult to say like, oh, okay, Active Admin does not have default support for this. I guess I'll just deal with it, maybe like split on commas and then serialize back or something like that. But it was really hard to like get into all of the places that I needed to. And they have functionality for decorating the object that you're viewing in the admin. But the decorator stuff was working by magic and didn't work for me and was like half documented. And it's a very DSL heavy admin framework. And I found that I was just running into edges and silent errors and silent not working and just way more pain than had I just written the controller myself, which is pretty easy to do. And then everything would have worked. Uh, And similarly on the React admin side, the thing that we were trying to do was not terribly difficult, but it was just off the like paved path enough that suddenly we were feeling a bunch of pain and we kept like fixing one thing, but then had to fix another and fix another and fix another and go like patch it up everywhere that these assumptions had been made. And overall at the end of this week, I'm just like, I don't know. I don't want to use magic admin systems anymore. I just want to write the code. I also feel strongly that admin code is important code and we should treat it as such. And do you test your admin code? That's actually, I'm going to just ask that yes. question. Yes. Okay. <laughs> that's a hard yes. I agree completely, but I think that's that's not super common. And at least one of the applications that I'm working on there is test coverage for the admin, which is great. But in a lot of applications that I've seen, the admin is just this magic thing that spins up. And so you don't need to test it because you're just getting it for free. But I totally feel that we should be testing these things because these are important workflows for the application that we're building. I also feel like admins, you just get all this functionality for free. But which of it are we actually using? Like, which do the admin users care about? What are the workflows that matter? What are the ones that I should make sure I don't break? Ideally, there are tests that tell us the answer to that question. But if we're getting all of this, like, oh, we've got list and create and edit and update and a bunch of other stuff just for free. Look at how great it is. But it's like, we don't use most of that. But now we sort of, without knowing what's getting used, we have the burden of maintaining all of it. And especially when it gets weird, which apparently it's very easy to get weird with these things. So... I don't know, I'm sort of burnt on admins and I just want to write the little bit of code that's necessary to make it work. I really, really appreciate when folks that are building products and software, when we, as you'd mentioned, that we treat admins as users and figure out what flows do they need, what features do they need, instead of like having this sort of side work of where like, oh, we need to build an admin and just like do it quickly and and sort of like don't really invest any time in it. And that always feels like it leads to this very poor experience for the people who are working very closely with at the company, most likely at the same company. They have a poor experience. There's still going to be some bugs that we need to address. But yeah, it's just sort of like swept under the rug as being less important. So I I full heartedly agree with you in that area where I feel like taking that experience and building it the correct way is going to lead for a more productive outcome for everybody that's involved. So you're working with three different admins. You've got Active Admin, React Admin, and I think you'd mentioned that you're working with Administrate or you were just looking at Administrate. I'm working with Administrate in a personal project, although similarly, Administrate, I would say, does the best job of providing a default, but then allowing you to like take over and override all of the magic behavior. But still, I'm running into some magic edges there. And I'm starting to consider 
partly because I just want to play around with other new technologies. Like, do I just start to replace functionality that I have and administrate with my own hand-rolled things? I don't know that I fully agree with that choice, but it's an interesting line. Yeah, I'm actually excited to hear that you're having a very positive experience with Administrate. It was, I think, about two years ago that I feel like Administrate was something that we'd started developing, but it was one of those projects where we didn't have like clear ownership and clear time that we were dedicating to working on it. But it was something that a lot of us kind of knew that it's something that we wanted in the world to combat some of the admins that you'd mentioned that are perhaps doing too much or have too much magic built into them. So I'm really excited that you're finding it to have a very positive experience where it's doing just enough to like get you up and running quickly, but isn't totally taking over or bringing too many features into the admin. It's kind of cool that you're getting to explore all of these and then compare all of them. All the admins. On the flip side, speaking of treating it as a real product and making sure that admins and individuals can work productively using that interface, I have seen where teams have gone the opposite direction or leaned in a little too far to that point where there's a lot of time being spent on the admin and less on the product side to the point that some of the technologies are perhaps a little more like client side or single page app or instantaneous where that's not necessary and server rendered HTML would really work beautifully for the admin. So I have seen teams where they've reached for a few too many technologies to build out the admin when perhaps keeping the technology for the admin simpler and understanding it doesn't have to be as fast as some of the like product facing code for other users. So yeah, there's like a sweet spot in the middle where you treat people as very important users of your system, but then also recognizing that the admin's not necessarily where you're making your money. So then you also don't want to take it to the point that you're going to spend a lot more development time in that area based on your technology choices. It's interesting that you say that because I both agree with the admins can sometimes be a place that developers will be like, oh, I've got a little playground. Like this is an internal thing. It's not quote unquote as important or something like that. So let me try out some new technologies in it. But interestingly, like for the same reasons that you're saying maybe we just build this with server rendered technologies or use a simpler tool, but that's more direct and perhaps more provable, easier to maintain, et cetera, et cetera. Like, again, I kind of feel like we shouldn't have the differentiation in our mind between, well, this is for real users and this is for admins. And admins, we can either reduce the quality of the app or it doesn't need to be accessible if it's for admins. I think we should probably hold a very similar bar across user facing and admin facing or like not even differentiate that we might choose slightly different things but i guess a different way to put it is i'm still a fan of rendering html on the server and having forms i think that's a a nifty way to build apps and so if we're choosing it for our admins is there a reason we shouldn't have chosen it for the users is it we need a, a flashy animated experience or something like that is that what's telling us to do it Granted, I'm still on my explorations of Inertia JS, which are my desperate search for a middle ground. And that'll probably have to, we'll go to next week to talk about that. But it's, it's continuing to go well. I'm very excited about it. I don't know what to follow up on first, the admin conversation or the Inertia JS. <laughs> yes, you make some good points. And I think it comes down to where are you going to be spending your time? I am having trouble finding the right words to sort of describe of you want your admin users to have a very positive, stable, helpful experience, but also recognizing that a lot of your development time is going to be focused on the product for other users that are non-admins. And that might need to be your more like fancier technology that you're using for them. So it's just sort of like 
like that balance of recognizing that if your team is spending a lot of time in the admin fixing bugs, because maybe you picked a new fun technology that you thought would be neat to play with, perhaps think about that decision. And I, I think that's what I'm, I'm specifically trying to target is that if you're in that space a lot, trying to keep up with the technology that you chose, that you don't actually need to get that job done. That's where I would pull back that choice and then find something that's a little easier for the team to maintain. Inertia JS though. So I'm just going to cheat and follow up on both. <laughs> Cheating. Yeah, it's awesome. I'm super into it. I added a progress bar this week. There's a progress bar that actually ships with it, which is really nice for if there's a response that takes slightly longer, but I haven't explained what it is or anything. And I feel like it'll take too long to dive into. And I want to get just a little bit further into my accelerations before we go too deep. But yeah, I'm super, super excited about it as a really nice bridging between I want that slightly fancier client side experience. I want some animation. I want some higher level of interactivity, but without having to give up on the entire idea of our server being the single source of truth of it, knowing about the routes and things like that. So I'm finding the middle ground that it strikes to be really, really interesting, and I'm excited to keep exploring it. But yeah, I'm going to tease with that. And then we've got a couple other things we want to chat about today, too. I do have one question before we, we pivot away from that one. Have you found that Inertia.js had really good guides to get you up and running? Or is there a particular like demo that you've been going through? It's pretty good. So I think the difficulty is the like default version of Inertia.js, the reference implementation, let's say, is Laravel on the back end. So PHP and Laravel as a framework. And then the front end portion is Vue.js. And inertia is more of like an idea or a conceptual approach, a protocol maybe is a way to describe it. And so you can do it with any backend language and any front end client side thing given you know a couple constraints. So Rails also can work on the backend, but it's a second class citizen. It's the best second class citizen, I would say, but it is still not the primary. So there's a little bit less documentation and a little bit less complete of a story around that. I had to cobble together some pieces from different places. And then similarly, React, I think, is a little bit better off on that, but it's still not the primary. The author of Inertia.js, I believe, uses it primarily in Laravel and Vue. And so that experience is going to be fantastic. And then the others, you might have to figure out a couple things or like pave down a couple rough edges. But overall, I've been able to get it working very comfortably without too much effort. And yeah, it's been good. Very cool. Okay. All right. Well, then I promise we'll save some more of that discussion for later, as you mentioned. On a different topic, I have been questioning my use of RSpec doubles. And I've been wondering if perhaps that I am overusing RSpec doubles over using spies and having more opportunities that I could swap a double out for a spy. So to give a little bit of context, specifically speaking to like RSpec world and Rails. So a double is an object that stands in for another object in your system while you're running like a particular test. The verifying doubles are really cool in the sense that they give you confidence that your stand-in double resembles the existing object that's in your system. So it'll prevent you from adding a stub for a method that doesn't exist on that object. And then there's also spies, which I'm familiar with, but I'll get to the new part in just a moment. So a spy is an object that's going to verify messages that were received during the course of the test. One of the key differences between the use of a double and a spy is a spy, you don't have to allow it to receive certain messages. It's just always listening for the messages it will receive versus a double. When I'm using a double in my test, I'm going to specifically say like you're allowed to receive this message or I'm going to add a stub for that particular message. 
And what brought this to the front of my mind this week is I noticed that RSpec, I think since about RSpec 3, I think it's RSpec's around 3.9 right now, but since RSpec 3, when they introduced the instance double, which is giving you more confidence in your doubles that they represent an existing object in your code base, but there's an instance spy that's going to do a similar behavior that it's going to verify that only messages that the object can actually receive are being received. And so it mitigates some of the work that you have to do when you want to verify that a particular message was sent. I'm normally in the camp that I've always been using an instance double. So I want it to be verified. And then I'm going to say that it's allowed to receive this particular message. And then I'm going to say, okay, after the test run, like, did you receive this message? And I've realized that I can use a spy instead for that place. And I don't have to do that whole like allow to receive this particular message. So it kind of cuts out one of the steps in my test. So it's made me wonder, I'm like, oh, have I been using doubles all along where I really should be using spies? Because I really care more about the message being received than I care about the response of like what that method does when it's called. And I'm curious, what do you think when you choose like doubles versus spies? Hmm. I don't think about it in those terms. So it's a little bit hard to tease apart like our spec syntax is the way I would think about this. But instance double is definitely a thing that I reach for because the what you were talking about, the verified double behavior, making sure that the object that you're stubbing out there does actually respond to those methods. Super into that. That sounds good. In terms of spies, I think of that as like, say, mailer. When I run this class, the like generate report, I might say allow mailer to receive deliver later. And that's a way for me and my test to assert at the end, I'll say like expect mailer to have received deliver later with the report. And that's a way to verify that my class is collaborating or is interacting with its collaborators correctly versus I think of a double as something to provide data or to like, I don't want to have to deal with all of the aspects of the system that would be necessary to get the data into the shape. I just want something that has this data. And I don't know that those are accurate differentiations, but that's sort of how I think about it. I didn't know about instance spy. And so that's interesting, especially the verifying behavior there. So that is something I would want to look at more. But yeah, those are some some initial thoughts. Cool, cool. Yeah, expanding on the great example that you just gave. So in that mailer example, I've been using, I think I have, it's been a while since I've written that exact code, but something similar. I believe I'm typically reaching for an instance double for that. So I am stubbing out, let's say if the mailer receives deliver, then I'm stubbing out the method deliver and saying, it, or it's allowed to receive deliver. And then I'm verifying that that message was received. So I essentially want to verify that a side effect took place. And now it's sort of like dawning on me. I'm like, oh, yeah, that makes more sense for a spy because I don't really care about what happens after the side effect. I just want to guarantee that the side effect is taking place. So I think that's where I'm at. And your example kind of like helped clarify as to like the fact that I'm using a double where I think a spy is probably more appropriate, more appropriate in the sense that it's lightweight and it reduces a little bit of the setup. It's not that I think either is like really right or wrong, but the spy is just a little more lightweight and maybe a little more communicative to the reader that this is intended that we just want to verify that a side effect took place and we don't actually care what happens when that side effect happens. Yeah, I think that framing of I just want to verify that a side effect happened, that's the way that I think about writing my tests. And so I'm interested to hear your sort of continued explorations on this. I would be interested to see a code sample that demonstrates this because it's it's not immediately clear to me what the difference is other than I'm not sure that the way that I do method spying at this point has the verification. And so that would be a nice addition to the tool set for me. But the like instant spy versus allow mailer to receive deliver later, it's not clear to me what the difference is there other than the verification. 
There may be more to it since I'm I'm just really now digging into it. But I think that is the difference is essentially it saves you from having to write that additional line of saying like, I have this object. And instead of saying what methods it can and can't receive, just let it receive all messages. So you don't have to write that allow mailer to receive deliver. You can just have the mailer equals like this instance by and give it the mailer class. And then after you call your code, then you can say expect mailer to have received. I could be wrong. Would you just say <laughs> instance by of mailer, like capital M mailer? And then everything on Mailer is now spied upon. That's my current impression. I'm now getting nervous as I'm talking more about this. <laughs> but that, that's my current impression of the world. So if I'm wrong, then I'll update myself next time we get back together and chat about this. So stay tuned if Stephanie's right or wrong. This is one of the great things about being wrong on the internet is don't worry, the internet will tell you. This is true. One concern that I would have with that then is when I do the explicit allow mailer to receive deliver later, I've now allowed that but not allowed any other version, any other methods to be called. And so if you try to call a different method, I'm actually not sure. It may just do the default implementation. It may only mock out that one thing. But I would want my test to not allow the other behavior perhaps or like, oh, it turns out it called deliver later, but also deliver now. It called both for some reason. And that's bad because we definitely don't want that. And do my tests now under constrain by virtue of using the like bigger hammer of an instance spy. I don't know that that's accurate, but that's a concern that I would have is like silently other behavior slipping under the rug. Yeah, I'm with you. I think that's a great concern. And I think that's what I'll dig into next to verify to see which one I'm going to start favoring or to understand the use of instance by a bit more. Because that's my current impression as well, is that with the instance doubles, like you do have to say what messages are and aren't allowed to be received. So then that way, if you do have sort of like a noisy test setup and you're having to stub out all these methods, it's sort of like a nice code smell to let you know that perhaps you're interacting with this object more than you think, or you have sort of this like painful test setup that you're having to go through. So it's a good hint that you could improve that implementation versus if it's a spy and it's just like, yep, I'm open to the world. You can send me anything. Then you're not going to notice that and you may miss that hint. So I think it's a really good concern. I'll look into it and report back. Awesome. I look forward to hearing or reading or seeing whatever form that takes in the future. But yeah, in other news, we've actually been a little bit behind, I think, in responding to some listener questions. So hopefully in the coming weeks, we will get back to that. But just wanted to put out the call again to anyone out there listening. We really do love when you folks send in listener questions. And I think it helps keep the variety and the topics interesting. And uh, frankly, you know, gets whatever idea you want as a thing that we're talking about. So that's a plus for you, listener out there. So yeah, please do send in listener questions. Hosts at bikeshed.fm is probably the easiest way you can send in an email or feel free to tweet at either Steph or I or the Bike Shed. On that note. Shall we wrap up? Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. The show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or a review in iTunes as it really helps other people find the show. And if you have feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bikeshed on Twitter or I'm at Chris Toomey. And I'm at S. Vicari. Or hosts at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.